Hi, this is Jonathan Armstrong, and thank you for joining us for a packed and hectic Tech Law 10 this week. Now, with me is my colleague, Eric Sinrod, uh, who's there uh, in California. And I think it's a busy week in tech law on both sides of the pond. Now, we're hoping to cover three different topics in just one podcast, which is probably a first for us other than number 100. Um, And we're going to discuss a little bit about developments in Ashley Madison, a bit about developments in the whole Brexit debate and how that applies to technology law. And then we're going to discuss Hillary Clinton's emails, a favorite topic of ours, I think, uh, on Tech Law 10 in the past. So, Eric, why don't you tell us about Ashley Madison first? Thank you, Jonathan. Yes, this will be packed and hectic, as you say. I guess that would be like texted or something. But in any event, <laughs> yes, this is Eric Sinrod. It's Wayne Morris. And we're starting with Ashley Madison. We've, this one keeps boomeranging back to us. And as you know, Ashley Madison claims to be the number one online site for people to live large and have extramarital affairs. And as you know, over a year ago, the site was hacked. A lot of the supposed anonymous users of the site had their identities unfortunately revealed. At that time, supposedly there were about 38 million users of the site. You'd think that after the major hack and all of the publicity attendant to it, that its membership would go down. But press reports have shown that you know, essentially any publicity is good publicity and membership has gone up. But as we've read this week, Jonathan, it turns out that when some people go on the site hoping to find somebody to have an extramarital affair with, they're actually dealing with fembots, uh, not real people. Um, so that's, that's the brief Ashley Madison news that sort of keeps coming back to us. So even if you're wanting to have uh, a little playtime on the side of your marriage, and even if you're willing to risk potentially having your identity revealed, at the end of the day, you might not even be uh, associating with a real person. So that being said, uh, unless, Jonathan, you have any comments on that one, and you might. Yeah, I, I, I have a quick I have a quick question. So um, I've also seen in, uh, recently that the Federal Trade Commission is going to investigate Ashley Madison's parent company. And I think people here are assuming it's into the data breach because the FTC has taken action against people in the past where they make misleading statements on their privacy policy, saying, for example, we will keep your data secure when clearly nobody in this world can make that promise in all consciousness. But it could be, could it, that the other misleading trade practice is the use of fembots. So whilst we know there's an FTC investigation, my understanding is that the FTC haven't commented yet, unless you know otherwise. It's only the company's new management who said they've got this FTC investigation. But I guess it's up in the air as to whether the investigation is into security or the use of fembots or both. Or or both. You're right, Jonathan, and good point. The FTC tends to investigate when companies essentially make assurances uh, on their websites that they don't keep. If you promise a certain level of privacy, uh, that could trigger an FTC investigation if you don't actually deliver. Uh, If you're promising that people are going to interact with real folks 
on, on the Internet, and, in fact, they're dealing with sandbox, that also could be a misrepresentation. So we will see where that goes, and I'm glad you pointed that out, and I know you've uh, been looking into that. So that being said, since we have an, a packed and hectic podcast, let's <laughs> now talk of Brexit. You know, well done, Great Britain. What do you think, Jonathan? <laughs> I'm not a huge Brexit fan at all, but this is the way, world we live with. I think uh, just to tie it in with Ashley Madison, of course, one of the interesting points, I think, from the FTC's intervention is that my understanding is that the company under investigation is a Canadian entity, not a U.S. entity. And I think that uh, shows how technology and technology law and regulation are truly borderless. And I think as a result, we need to look at the whole Brexit debate in that context. But having said that, I know we did a podcast, if anyone wants to listen to it again, episode 169 on uh, March 18th, I think, where we looked at the potential effects of Brexit on GDPR, this new uh, all-embracing European debt protection regulation. And I think I'd probably stand by most of the comments I made then, which is that in pure GDPR terms, I don't think the Brexit has much of an impact in that this regulation would likely be in force before the UK left the EU. So it's, uh, it's not a podcast where we've got a lot of time to discuss the intricacies of Article 50 and pressing the button, because that's the technical, uh, the, the, the technical way it happens. But basically, as far as timelines are concerned, as we sit here at the moment, and these timelines could change, the UK has to appoint a new prime minister, and we might know who that is as early as next week. Then that new prime minister, whichever uh, of the two choices it is, uh, we do know it's a she, she will have to then, I think, get uh, some preparation done for triggering the mechanism to leave the EU. The other option, of course, is that she could call a new general election, try and get a different mandate to reverse Brexit. But assuming Brexit still happens, I think the smart money is that that can happen at earliest in October. There's then a two-year notice, two notice period, which would mean that the UK would leave the EU sometime maybe around October 2018. There's a school of thought that says that things like accession to the EU are often done on the 1st of January, to have, you know, some sort of clarity and cleanness about it. So there's a school of thought which says that actually the leave date, if the UK proceeds with this referendum, which isn't binding, of course, it's only advisory, the leave date might be the 1st of January 2019. And, of course, GDPR will become law on the 25th of May 2018. So if you're keeping up, there's a, there's a minimum period, it seems, on that timetable of six months when GDPR will take place. Now, what happens after that remains to be seen. It will depend. There's another body within Europe called the EEA, the European Economic Area. The UK is still a member of the uh, EEA as well. Even if it leaves the EU, it would still be in the EEA. And there are arrangements that treat EEA countries effectively the same as EU countries for data protection 
terms. But if for some reason the UK didn't remain in the EEA, then I think it gets really tricky. And I think the UK is sort of in the same position as the US, certainly in the same position of Canada, in that we need an adequacy finding. There are all sorts of issues with that because, of course, there are allegations, and I stress allegations, that GCHQ is engaged in similar mass surveillance as the allegations that have been made against the NSA. And one prominent German uh, European parliamentarian who's led much of the fight in Parliament against Safe Harbour uh, has also said that he would want to take a look at the way in which the UK security services handle data should the UK leave the EEA. So, in short, I think nothing much changes in the short term. No need for panic. Regulation probably won't get lighter. If anything, could get heavier if the UK leads the EEA. And obviously, it's a volatile political situation in that, you know, the, the one thing I think that is certain is that David Cameron will go, but we're not sure who his uh, successor will be, except we do now know it's a woman. And that's a neat segue to what could be the U.S.'s first female leader as well, Eric. <laughs> so let's talk about So no need to panic, everyone, especially with Jonathan Armstrong on the scene. You can tell he's on top of it, and he throws around those, that alphabet soup of letters so cogently. Uh, but it made perfect sense, and we did follow you. So thank you. Um, interestingly about Brexit, and it does turn it back to sort of our political situation, because, you know, when Donald Trump was over there in Scotland, and of course he, he got it wrong. He got it wrong in terms of how Scotland was voting on Brexit. He was a strong supporter of Brexit, and he was pontificating nationalism and essentially isolationism. And some people read that as code, really, for for racism, um, and that he is you know anti-immigration. We know that, and there are some that feel that he really is just playing to the fears of whites and maybe more particularly white males. So that gets to our political race. And of course, we have now two major party nominees, Donald Trump for the Republicans. We have Hillary Clinton for the Democrats. We also have a libertarian candidate and perhaps others coming out of the woodwork. Um, but let's now look at Hillary Clinton. And, you know, I won't hide it. I'm, I'm not a Donald Trump supporter. And so you can guess who I'm, I'm leaning toward. Uh, in fact, rather relatively strongly. But um, you know, I have spent quite a bit of time dealing with government records and government information, and we have this nagging issue for Hillary Clinton relating to how she handled emails on private servers when she was uh, the Secretary of State. And of course, that's been investigated, and very recently, very recently, the FBI essentially said that what she did was extremely careless, but it doesn't warrant uh, criminal prosecution. And so the FBI is not recommending criminal prosecution. But now on the heels of that, we're hearing that the State Department was basically being held in abeyance, but now the FBI is backing off. The State Department might now conduct its own investigation, which could lead to uh, you know, certain, um, oh, uh, how should I say this? I don't, I'm not criminal prosecution, but reprimands of State Department and personnel uh, in the form of now restricting their access to classified information. And perhaps that would ripple up all the way to Hillary Clinton, which could be extremely awkward 
is as a presidential candidate and then presumably possibly the, the president if somehow the State Department investigation says that based on how she handles uh, government information, she should not have access to classified information because that would be too high a risk. So what do I think about all that? Well, I don't know. Um, there's so much politics involved here. I will say this, though. I don't think, this is my own personal view, I don't think Hillary Clinton had any malice I- involved in any of this. I don't think she was purposely trying to uh, hide government information. And it seems that the information that was being trafficked on her private servers um, was not classified, even though some, there might be, I think, I think just a handful that might have been potentially classified, but that's not for sure. The problem is this, Jonathan. I've litigated issues up to our United States Supreme Court under the Freedom of Information Act. And basically, government information is supposed to be available to the public under this public records statute unless one of just a few narrow exemptions applies. Uh, And information can be classified as state secrets or part of a uh, a law enforcement investigation, and then the people don't have access to it, but it still has to be um, uh, accountable. So, for example, if I make yeah. a records request to the government, they might produce 90% of what I'm entitled to, and then they will tell me, here's, you know, they will give me enough identifying information so I know the 10% I'm not getting. So if I feel it's been improperly withheld, I can challenge it. But you just can't have government records off in some other sphere where they're shielded completely from the public in terms of public records requests. That's just one aspect of the problem. And that was somehow completely ignored. There was, uh, you know, because of convenience, uh, probably not because of any malice, but it doesn't look good. It creates the impression of poor judgment, carelessness, and it sort of plays into this notion that the people feel that this presidential candidate is not completely trustworthy um, she doesn't score high in that regard. Trump scores even lower. Um, yeah. You know, from an experience standpoint, obviously Hillary Clinton has a lot more experience in government. Um, but it's, it's, this is her Achilles heel. I don't know if it's um, fatal to her political, political campaign. Probably the best thing going for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign is Donald Trump. Um, mm-hmm. if, she, if, she, if she were running against a very formidable political candidate on the other side, this issue uh, and others might result in her not winning the election. I, I do think she probably will win the election, and I hope I haven't been too political here, but it's, it's, in some ways it is a political issue. So all that being said, Jonathan, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think this whole thing's fascinating, and I recall that we did a podcast on this and predicted it w- would be an issue that would run and run. I recall that as being Easter mm-hmm. 2015, and, and why I say that is I can recall doing that podcast in a particularly beautiful part of Cornwall where we, where we were on, on vacation. So I've got the luxury of whenever I hear about the, uh, the, the Hillary and, uh, Clinton email scandal, I actually, uh, you know, it takes me back to a happy place which I imagine is exactly the opposite of Hillary's reaction. But, um, sure. I, I, I mean, it, it obviously, I mean, much the same would apply with FOI here, and, and there have been uh, uh, government officials that have tried to bypass the FOI system by the use of Gmail and stuff like that, and, uh, and equally. 
the authorities here have been scathing, as, as they should, because it mm-hmm. is likely to compromise security as well as uh, the FOI. And, and, and I guess from a distant view, the uh, trouble that we would have, as I say, looking at it from thousands of miles away, is could Director Comey cogently investigate this breach, uh, as he did heading the FBI, when he was appointed by the Obama administration, I guess, that's obviously routing for Hillary, as we saw with Obama on the stomp, you know, just, I think, the same day as the FBI's announcement. And, and I think, you know, we have this, you know, underwriting tenant of law over in the UK that I think you've inherited that justice must not only be done, but it must be seen to be done. Mm -hmm. And doesn't the, uh, let's just say, alleged possible partiality of the FBI, given that the director of the FBI is and has been since time immemorial a political appointee, mean that this is perceived by some as government investigating itself? And that gives ammunition to the Trumps of this world who paint themselves as people outside the establishment sticking up for the little man. And um, just finally on that point, I went to a very illuminating lecture from a guy called Jim Nocte, who's a prominent BBC journalist this week. And um, I I won't uh, go into the full details of what he said, but he had a very interesting analysis of the Brexit campaign and the Donald Trump campaign. And just as you were saying, there are many similarities, you know, appealing to the, you know, the, the, whatever the opposite of uh, political intelligentsia is, you know, uh, appealing to the class of people that don't normally get involved in politics. And I guess just as in Brexit, we saw that these people who don't normally vote were mobilized. The million-dollar question, or probably even more, given Trump's allegations of wealth and the amount Hillary's raised, let's say the billion-dollar question will be, can Trump turn out people who don't normally vote? And if so, does that become a closer race? And, and, and will the email stuff play well in that constituency? Well, I guess, as you say, it'll just confirm that narrative that Trump has that the administration is corrupt and incestuous. So my distant view would be that. (laughs) Well, I will just have one final thought. I can't resist. And that is to say that just because someone is a political appointee, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that they uh, do not act with independence and impartiality. And there are countless instances. For example, when uh, a president has appointed a federal judge, that person is confirmed by the Senate, and then as a judge rules on particular government matters against what the administration might want, just as an example. Um, so there, that, that can be raised as a potential appearance of, of bias. Uh, that would be a political argument. Um, it doesn't mean that that's the case. Uh, and yeah, by the and, same... Uh, right. And let me clarify. Uh, let me clarify that in case it's misinterpreted. I've had the honor of only briefly but uh, I have met Jim Comey, and I don't make any allegations against him 
personally uh, at all. Um, I think he's done his best to act impartially. It's, it's not a question for me as whether justice has been done. It's this perception thing that's my worry, and it, and it is in no way a, an allegation against him personally. No, we understand. All right, well, listen, this has been a packed and hectic podcast, as Jonathan uh, introduced. Thank you for being with us uh, this particular week. We hope to keep coming back to you. As always, we're getting closer and closer to Podcast 200, uh, so we'll have, to do some, we'll have to do some sort of celebration, Jonathan, uh, on our 200. I think we'll invite, we'll invite Jim Comey and Donald <laughs> Trump as guests. What about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't leave out Hillary Clinton, man. Uh, <laughs> hey, listen, we'll invite them. Let's see if they show up. They'll have a little debate on our – it won't be a tech law 10. That'll be a, a tech law 120. Uh, and then this one's probably a tech law 25 right now. So anyway, this is Eric Sinrod at Dwayne Morris. My email is ejsinrod at dwaynemorris.com. As you know, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, the usual social media outlets. We don't have any fembots here. Uh, we're not part of Brexit. Uh, so, Jonathan, wrap it up. Yeah, and thanks for listening, and thanks for bearing with us. This has been, uh, as Eric said earlier, uh, something of a trifecta rather than a, a mono... I suppose it's a mono-duologue, really, normally, in that two of us talk about the same topic. But let us know what you think about it. Do you like it when we talk about more than one thing at once? Uh, and do, as I say, feedback, feedback other topics to us that you think we should discuss all that remains i guess is to thank you for listening let me give you my contact details first jonathan.armstrong at cordycompliance.com you can find uh, us both on twitter at ej sinrod or at armstrong jp and uh, we'll speak to you again in a week or so cheers 